So the women get to go to retreat, the men get to do yard work. <laughs> sounds about right. All right, well, please take your Bibles and turn to Luke 22. Luke chapter 22, that's where we'll be uh, for most of this morning. Uh, my name is Scott Shoup. I'm the youth pastor here. I work with the youth, the college, the uh, small groups, and uh, I'm, I'm so excited this morning. We are, we're in a series this whole fall called Activate, uh, which is really on seeing you be activated in order to impact those around you. Uh, part of our, our vision here at Fullness is that we uh, expand our influence and make a difference around us. And that's really what this whole series on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights is about. And if you haven't been able to make the Wednesday nights, I do encourage you to come to that. Those really are designed to fit to correspond with Sunday mornings, and they've been really, really helpful. Um, but today, I'm so excited. We're going to talk about being activated by grace. Every week, uh, we've basically looked at, at, a, at a character from Scripture, and today we're going to be looking uh, at a story from, from the life of Peter, the disciple Peter, and uh, talking about being activated by grace to influence others through grace. And, and I, would, I would contend this, this morning that um, if, if we do not have a, a deep, personal, experiential understanding of the grace of God in our lives, then all the training, all the, the natural giftings and, and being able to lead and influence others really will be insufficient if we're to truly make an impact for the kingdom of God, for the glory of God around us. Um, we have to um, taste and see of the grace of God for ourselves before we can give it away for others. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. One of a, a, a blogger that, that I read sometimes, um, a guy by the name of, of Tim Challies, uh, he had a, an article a few weeks back that I, I thought really fit well with, with uh, this this morning. Um, he's, a, he's Canadian, actually. He's an elder in his church. He's a husband, a father. And he had this interesting article that he titled, The Greatest Burden of Leadership. The Greatest Burden of Leadership. And he kind of lists several things that he feels that are, are burdens and weights um, as a leader. But then he, he says this. He writes, But I believe the greatest difficulty of all is the knowledge that I'm leading poorly. It's the knowledge that I'm not leading as well as I could or as well as I would. I wish I would. The burden of responsibility is light compared to the burden of insufficiency, inability, or just plain failure. If all those other weights are heavy, this is the one that threatens to be crushing. He goes on to say, I see my leadership failures in my home. I don't lead my family in the ways I know I should. Sometimes I see we're going nowhere as a family. Sometimes I see we're bored, discouraged, disgruntled, disinterested. Sometimes I see how long it's been since we've sat down together for family devotions or how long it's been since I've talked to my children about the state of their souls. I see my leadership failures in my church. I don't lead the church in the ways I know I should or even the ways I could if only I would. I consider how little I've prayed for the church, how few times I've picked up the phone to check in on someone, how few times I've invited people into my world or invited myself into theirs. I see my leadership failures in every part of my leadership, and this is my greatest burden. I wonder if anyone else this morning can relate. You may not see yourself as a leader, but as, as Cheryl Ross shared a few weeks ago, everyone here is a leader because leadership is influence. And if you have 
influence over at least one person in your life, you are by definition a leader. And I wonder if, if you feel the burden of, of uh, the greatest burden of leadership when you interact with your, your spouse or your children or maybe the people in your small group, your E3 group or people at work or, or classmates or, or neighbors that don't know the Lord. I, I know that I can relate to, to this feeling, this burden, and it can become very heavy to carry, feeling like, oh, I'm not doing a good enough job in influencing others for the kingdom, for the gospel. But there is really good news, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. And, and I hope, I pray that, that we are encouraged as we, as we see the, the freedom of being activated by grace as we look at, at the apostle Peter. Peter um, Peter's a, a, a really a fascinating character. Um, I, think, I think you'd probably agree. Um, Peter gives hope to the rest of us. <laughs> um, Peter is, uh, he's interesting. He's not a scholar. He's not, he hasn't been trained in scripture um, like, like Paul was, who was trained as a Pharisee and underneath a Pharisee. Peter is not highly educated as, as Luke, the doctor, was, who's writing the, the gospel that we're going to look at today. Peter was not super wealthy like Lydia, who we meet in Acts, who's dealing with purple and is, is very wealthy. Um, Peter's just a, a normal guy. He's a, he's a fisherman. He's a blue-collar worker. He is very opinionated. He's not afraid to speak his mind on things. He often says stupid things that he regrets. Um, he's, he's married. He's just he's a normal, everyday guy. And we're going to look this morning at a scene, um, an encounter that he has with his leader, Jesus, just hours before Jesus goes to be slaughtered on a cross. And what's so fascinating to me about this, this story is, I think you guys probably are, are familiar with this if you've, if you've read, if you've grown up in, in church, but um, even though all four gospel writers include this conversation between Jesus and Peter, where, where Jesus predicts that Peter's going to deny him, Luke alone includes some details in this conversation that the other gospel writers don't include because Luke tends to be a little more detailed when he, when he recounts things about Jesus. And uh, they're really fascinating details that we're going to look at. In the immediate context here, this is the night before Jesus is betrayed and will go to the cross. The Lord's Supper has just taken place. It's already happened like we did this morning. And the disciples started, again, arguing about who's the greatest, who's the greatest among them. And Jesus is, has been trying to teach them a little bit about servant leadership. And Peter obviously does not get it. It, it goes over his head, as, as we're about to see. Um, Peter doesn't get it. But then we pick up the story in Luke, in Luke 22, verses 31 through 34. And this is Jesus talking to Peter. And Jesus says this. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. I want to draw three main points from this passage with some subpoints underneath them. Um, but the first point that I want to draw is the danger of deactivation. The danger of deactivation. Now, of course, we're in a series called Activate, but I think this passage shows clearly 
there's a real danger, there was for Peter and there is for us today, a danger of deactivation. To deactivate means to cause to be inactive, to remove the effectiveness of. To cause to be inactive, to remove the effectiveness of. And it's interesting, first of all, that, that Luke, or I'm sorry, that Peter, refer, that Jesus refers to Peter by his old name. Because remember, Peter used to be called Simon. That, that was his name, and then Jesus changed his name to, to Peter. But he, here, I think this is the only place after his name is changed that Jesus refers to him by his old name. He calls him that twice, and he says, Simon, Simon, behold. And I think basically what Jesus is doing here is he's kind of grabbing Peter by the shirt and saying, Peter, focus, pay attention. This is, you're about to enter a really crucial time. You're about to enter a really dark season where you revert back, actually, to acting like you did before you knew me, where you act like your old self before you were really in relationship with me. And one of the ways that, uh, that we can be deactivated one of the dangers of deactivation is, is through spiritual attack, spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is real. It's, it's interesting here. Um, Jesus says, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And that the image is a very violent one. Um, it's, the, it's the idea of when, when you sift wheat, you, you shake it. You, you put it in something and you shake it back and forth rather violently in order to cause it to fall. And so the image here is that Satan wants to violently shake to, in order to cause his faith to, to fail, to fall. But it's also interesting here that when, when Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he may sift you as wheat, actually the you there is, is plural in the original language. So Satan did not just demand to have Peter. He demanded to have all of the disciples. He demands to have all of us in order that he may sift us, shake us, to cause our faith to fail. Satan wishes to deactivate you, to take you out, to cause you to be inactive and ineffective, both individually and corporately, to mess up God's plan, what God wants to do in the earth. But not only that, there's also another danger of deactivation, is our own pride. Notice how, how confident Peter is in his own ability here. He can't even conceive of the fact that he could fail. He says, Lord, I'm, I'm ready to be tortured. I'm ready to go to prison. I'm ready to die for you right now. Let's go. And of course, he doesn't realize, like Jesus does, that he's, he's not ready. And just in a few hours, he's going to deny that he even knows Jesus and to a, a servant girl. But our pride and our self-reliance deactivates us because, how does it do that? It, can, it makes us grace-less people. Because if, if we're confident in our own ability, we don't need the grace of God to, to, to help us along. But it also, it makes us vulnerable. It opens us up to the attacks of the enemy like it did Peter. But not only that, our deactivation, it, it affects others. Even though we're not, maybe not doing anything, maybe we haven't been activated, our deactivation can actually affect others. You know, Peter um, the, the other disciples are around. They're, they're obviously, they're hearing this conversation between Jesus and Peter. And Peter's not having a very good influence, I would guess, on the other disciples right now. In fact, I would guess they're probably pretty annoyed by him. Saying basically, I mean, these people may, they may deny you, but I'm ready to, to be with you to the death. Um, he's, 
he's, he's, his deactivation is, is affecting them. <clears throat> I've, I've worked in, in different environments, work environments, um, that were really had no grace in the work culture, the work environment. I'm not talking about working here at Fullness. Um, but you can probably, I would guess there are probably several that can relate of working in a place where there's really no grace. Even if it's a, it's a Christian business with a Christian boss, um, the, the place where I worked, I'm not, not going to say the name of it, but um, th- th- it was really a, a culture of, of legalism. And what was interesting, though, when, when I worked there was there was this top-down trickle effect. The, the upper-level leadership really didn't lead from a place of grace and it affected those of us who were underneath them, made it harder for us to, to be influenced by grace, to influence others by grace. And then for those who were under us, which a lot of them actually didn't know the Lord, it hurt them because it, it hurt their, the way they saw the gospel. They had a very inaccurate picture of what following Jesus looked like. And so there was this trickle-down effect um, from upper-level leadership down the way through the organization and the deactivation influenced others negatively. So where there is no understanding of the grace of God, it's really hard to be activated to impact others for God. But here's, here's where the good news is. Number two, point number two, if you're, if you're following along on the, on the outline, is grace activates us. Grace is what ultimately activates us. What is the reason that is given for why Peter's faith will not ultimately fail, will not ultimately fall. It's not Peter's ability, Peter's strength, Peter's willpower, Peter's talent, even though that's what, probably what Peter is assuming right now. But Jesus, the, re- the reason that Jesus gives for why Peter will not fall, will not fail ultimately in his faith is Jesus's prayer. I love the, the shift here, and it's, it's very emphatic. He says, Satan's demanded to have you to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus's prayer is the deciding factor, and the word here for prayed is elsewhere in the book of Luke. It's translated actually as begged or to pray earnestly. So Jesus is saying, I have undergone intense intercession for you, Peter. And, by the way, the, ver- the, um, the tense of you here changes from plural to singular. So Jesus is saying, yes, Satan has demanded to have all of the disciples, to sift them all. But I have prayed for you specifically by name, Peter. I have called your name out before the Father. I have interceded for you personally. And we know from Scripture that Jesus, Jesus prays for us as well. Hebrews and Romans talks about that Jesus lives, ever lives to intercede for us. But also, <clears throat> it's, it's so fascinating. Jesus doesn't say, I've prayed for you, and if you turn back, strengthen your brothers. He says, when you turn back, there is no question, there is no uncertainty here for whether or not his prayer is going to work, whether or not Peter is going to, to be sustained, whether he's going to come back. <clears throat> Try, try to imagine here, though, Jesus is saying this. Jesus is fully aware that it's going to really hurt. 
here in just a couple of hours, after, really less than that, after this. To, to, he, Jesus knows that one of his inner circle, one of his best friends who he's walked with closely side by side for three years is about to be so embarrassed by him that he says, I, I don't even know him and, and call down curses on himself. He said, I'm so embarrassed by Jesus, I don't even know him. Jesus is very aware of the hurt of that. He, and there's nothing in Peter that, that deserves this prayer of Jesus. This is all grace. Jesus' prayer is all grace. One, one um, scholar, this is how he defines grace. And I, I love this definition. He says, grace is God's love in action in Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. I love that, that it's, it's God's love in action in Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. It activates us because it is an active thing. And Jesus prays for Peter, but he prays for you. One of my, uh, one of my favorite old hymns is um, it's the old hymn called um, Before the Throne of God Above. And I'm not going to, I'll spare you from hearing me sing it, but I do want to um, read some of it um, to you. This is a couple of, of verses from it. It says, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do I do? Upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Here's what, what I imagine. This is just my imagination. I don't know if this is for, for sure real, but this is what I imagine it, it, it could look like um, as Jesus is, is sitting in heaven next to the Father, interceding on our behalf especially after we fail, after we mess up, which we, we all do, of course. And uh, I picture it a little bit like this. Obviously, they're aware. Jesus sees everything that takes place. So he sees when, when you mess up and you fail as, as an influencer. Um, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that Satan, the one who sifts and shakes, he also is an accuser. He, he shakes us, but then he accuses us before the Father. And so I, I picture him kind of, screaming at God the Father, saying, do you see so-and-so? Do you see her? She messed up again. She, she messed up again for the hundredth time. He's, he messed up. How can you possibly use him to influence others for your kingdom? And I picture Jesus. You know, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So I picture, here's the Father. Here's Jesus. And I, this is what I picture Jesus doing. I picture Jesus holding up his hands with the scars that are still in them from the cross, because he still bears the scars from the cross. And I picture him holding up his scarred hands in front of his father's face and saying, remember, Father, I paid for that. I paid for that. I covered that. I bought, I purchased that one. That person is free. I know him. He's one of ours. She is one of ours. And I picture the father looking lovingly at, at his son's scarred hands that he holds up in front of his face and saying, I know, son. I know. I remember. 
and I'm pleased. I'm pleased at what you did, and that is one of ours. And the accusation of the enemy has no grounds over him and her. Jesus prays for you. And here's the awesome thing. The prayers of Jesus for you are more powerful than the plans of Satan for you. Jesus says, Satan wants to have you. He wants to sift you, to shake you. But my prayers are more effective, more powerful on your behalf than Satan's plans for your life. Richard Sibbs, the old uh, Puritan preacher, he says, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. That is, that is good news. <clears throat> but now, being a recipient of grace does not mean perfection, of course, because Peter goes on, to de- he does deny three times that he knows Jesus. And so faith that doesn't fail does not mean perfect faith. Your, but your failings are not so great that they can't be used by God to impact others. And in fact, I would go so far to say, and I think this is what Scripture would, would affirm, is that sometimes God actually allows us to be sifted, to be shaken as part of our story so that from that place of shaking, we can be used to impact others for, for God. And so the grace is, is not meant for us alone. It is meant to go through us out to impact others. And that leads to point three, and it's we impact others through grace. We are activated by grace to impact others through grace. Peter, because of the grace of Jesus, is commanded to impact and influence others in this, in this verse. Jesus tells Peter, he says, um, when you have turned again, I've prayed for you, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And that word uh, strengthen there, what that, what that really means is that can mean uh, to establish, to make fast, to support, to give a firm and fixed position. One, one scholar, he, he defines it as, he says it's used to describe um, it's used in the, in the New Testament to describe the process of helping someone else grow in their faith, helping someone else grow in their faith. And so what Jesus is saying is, out of the grace that you've been given, <clears throat> impact others. So we don't ultimately impact others out of our own gifts and abilities, even though it's important to know all of that. And we're talking about that some on, on Wednesday nights. Ultimately, we impact others from a place of grace. That is how we expand our influence and make a difference. And only God, through His grace, can use your weaknesses and points of failure to actually strengthen and impact others. Kind of the, the word picture I get is just as people have, have gone down to Florida or to Houston uh, to, to help strengthen the, the broken um, buildings, to, to establish those buildings, to make them firm again, to withstand the beating. That's, that's what we're called to do to others, is to help strengthen them to withstand the shaking in their lives. But this, it's also so fascinating to me that this is also a call by Jesus to Peter of servant leadership, of, of leading from a place of, of lowliness, of, of servanthood. Um, notice that he, he doesn't tell Peter, Peter, when you've turned back, strengthen your followers. Because you know, Jesus knows that, that Peter is going to be one of the main leaders in the, in the new church, in the early church. He's going to be one of, the, one of the top guys. 
But he doesn't say, you know, Peter, when you've turned back, strengthen your inferiors, strengthen your followers. No, he says, strengthen your brothers. Basically, that, that means strengthen your fellow believers. Lead from a place not of superiority, but lead from a place of being side by side, being equal with. Uh, Pastor Larry Michael, he says this. He says, typically, a boss says, go. But a leader says, let's go. A leader leads as a servant. A good leader leads as one beside. Say, we're on this together. We're going we're gonna to do this together. So we strengthen others through grace by doing it alongside them. This is, this is a long, slow process. You know, Peter was not instantly all put together and ready to go right after this, right after this, this story. Uh, he has, as you know, probably, there, there are ups and downs in his life. Later, he, uh, in, in Galatians, we, we know that, that, that Paul rebuked Peter, as, as Pastor Bart preached about a few weeks ago, or a couple months ago in Galatians, where Paul has to rebuke Peter. But it's interesting to me that when Peter writes his letters, you know, we have his letters, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, those were written about 30 years after this story, after this encounter with Jesus. And so um, in those letters, specifically, I'm thinking of, of 1 Peter, uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful picture of a, now an older saint who has been activated by grace and who's been walking with the Lord for a long time, who is strengthening his brothers through, through grace. Um, I encourage you, if, if you want to just a quick encouragement, a quick strengthening, go read First Peter. Um, I, I read it, it it's about, takes about 15 minutes, really, to read it. You could read it on, on lunch break. And, um, but, but it's so cool that in, in the short little letter of First Peter, Peter, the writer, he uses the word grace, or a form of the word grace, ten times in that letter. So, I mean, it is a grace-saturated letter, and he actually ends the letter like this. He says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter is strengthening his brothers, impacting his brothers through grace. <clears throat> but when, when, when we are activated by grace and we begin to impact others through grace, it changes things. It shifts things in the environment, in the, the atmosphere that, that we're in. And I want to use just a couple of illustrations um, from just a couple of, of worlds. First, the world of, of parenting, um, which I have been thrown into, and, and it, that world is expanding now for us. And, um, but one of, one of my favorite authors uh, who's, been, who's been helpful in, in my life and in uh, my wife Andy's life is, is uh, Paul Tripp. And he says this about parenting in, in his book, um, but I think this is, is so applicable to, to any, any um, relationship in life. He says this. I know this font's a little bit small, but hopefully you can read it. He says, here's the humbling conclusion that God in grace led me to. I am more like my children than unlike them, and so are you. The reality is that there are few struggles in the lives of my children that aren't in my life as well. Materialism, relationships, wanting my own way, attraction to the world, subtle idolatries, etc. This admission transformed my parenting. Instead of approaching them with self-righteous outrage, 
I moved toward them as a sinner in need of grace, needing to confront a sinner in need of grace. God's plan, I love this, God's plan is to make his invisible grace visible to children by sending parents of grace to give grace to children who need grace. And parents who know they need grace tend to want to give grace to children who are just like them. I feel like I, I am being taught that lesson again every day. Um, but I, I think that applies to, to any relationship that you might be in, is, is strengthening them from a place of, of grace. A few years ago, um, Fuller, Fuller Seminary did, did a major uh, multi-year study on young people who had graduated from youth ministry, had come up in the church through youth ministry, had graduated, moved on. And in this study that Fuller was doing, they, uh, they were looking for common factors, common denominators in the young people who had walked away from, from the church, from, from God. Because um, you know, I think we all know that the stats that a lot of young people end up walking away after they leave high school. And so they were, they were looking for what are some, some common factors, some common denominators in these young people. And they, they found a few, but one that I thought was really fascinating that they found was that among the young people who didn't remain faithful was they did not understand grace in their lives. They, they did not see Christianity as as a, as a faith of, of grace. They viewed it as, as very performance-based, as things that, that I do for God rather than God's grace for sinners that he does through Jesus in order to empower me to do things for God. And one of the, the head researchers, um, a guy named Chap Clark, he said this, commenting on uh, the findings of the study. He said, a performance-based Christianity can last only so long. When kids reach the awareness through failure or pain or insecurity or inner wrestling with who is the owner of their faith, when they reach the awareness that they do not have the power or the interest to keep the faith treadmill going, they will put their faith aside. And so strengthening, when we strengthen the next generation, this is, this is close to my heart, of course, when we strengthen the, the next generation through grace, it will have an impact on them. And that, that's, that's why in, when, when I interact with our young people here, our, our high school or, or our college students, uh, they probably get tired of hearing me talk about the gospel. And, and I hope, I, honestly, I hope they do get, the point, get to the point where they are tired about me talking about the gospel, talking about the grace of God. So let's not put people on a faith treadmill. Let's, let's strengthen them through, through grace. And I want to close with showing, sharing kind of a... A sort of a personal story. Um, I think most of you probably know my, my dad is a, is a college baseball coach. He coached at, coaches at, uh, at UAB. He's been there for a while now. And um, that's where I graduated. And uh, I want to tell a story of, this is probably my favorite story, of one of his players in, in particular uh, who was there at UAB when, when I was there. And um, so this was around 2007, 2008. And it was this summer. And uh, the UAB, UAB baseball team was, they were recruiting, trying to find players still. And they, they had a hole in, in the team that they needed to fill. They were looking for uh, someone who could play second base or shortstop, um, that, that kind of a, a player. And um, they were having trouble finding someone. And they'd heard this, this name of this one particular player from Memphis, Tennessee. 
And uh, so they knew about him, but um, none of the Division I schools were willing to, to offer this guy scholarship money. And when I say Division I, I mean kind of the sort of the upper level um, athletic programs. And uh, they, they knew about him, but they didn't want, nobody wanted to offer him scholarship money. And the reason why was because he was really small. He was, um, he's about my size, uh, which for Division I college athletics is really tiny, um, really, really small. And so no one was willing to, to give him a chance. But they, they decide to, well, we'll invite him down to at least look at the campus and meet the coaches, and we'll talk to him, get to know him. So they do. They invite him down. He comes, and uh, they talk, and they like him, but they're, just, they're not sure if, if they really want to take the chance to, to offer him scholarship money. And uh, my dad may be the only Division I college coach in America who makes recruiting decisions this way, but uh, he's, he's praying to the Lord, asking for direction. And uh, I've heard him tell this story many times, but he tells it that he, he, was, uh, he was looking at his bookshelf, and I, actually, I can't remember if it was at his, in his office or at our house at the time, but he's, he looks at his bookshelf. I think he's like up praying one morning, and uh, for some reason, he, his eye is drawn to this one particular book on the shelf, and he pulls it off the shelf for some reason. And uh, it was actually a book that I, I don't think he even remembers now as he tells the story, the name of the book. Um, but uh, his, his parents, my grandparents, had given it to him. And uh, he actually hadn't even cracked the book open. Um, but he, for whatever reason, picks up the book and th- starts flipping through it. And he opens the book to this, this, the page that is talking about the story of the anointing of King David in 1 Samuel 16. And his eye is drawn to the verse of Scripture where God says, Do not consider his, his height, his stature, uh, his, his appearance. And... Obviously, it's taking the, the, the verse a little bit out of context, but um, Dad was like, all right, Lord, I'm going to take that as that's a sign. I'm going to offer this guy scholarship money. And so they do. They, they offer him uh, scholarship money. He comes to UAB. Uh, he ends up starting all four years, three years at second base, one year at shortstop, makes all freshman team, makes all conference, becomes one of the leaders on the team, one of the, the spiritual Christian leaders on the team. And um, he's graduated, and he's, he's living in Birmingham now. And our, some of our young people would know him as Nick Crawford. He's with Common Thread Ministries here in Birmingham. He, he runs a, an athletic ministry and is making a huge impact in the city of Birmingham for the kingdom of God, uh, especially among those of, of lower income in, in the inner city. And uh, I tell that story because, to me, I, I love that story. Uh, that is a picture of someone who, who was given grace. Most people didn't want to take a chance on him, didn't want to give him a chance, but he was given grace, and he's been so mightily used by the Lord to, to impact others. We've taken our youth group uh, multiple times to, to partner with Common Thread, and Nick's actually one of my best friends. He's, um, I would describe him as one of the most grace-filled, gentle guys that I know. So, um, so as I, I want to close, but as I, as I close, I, I think all of us can probably find ourselves in the story of Peter in, in some way this, this morning. Um, maybe you feel like 
you are, are currently in that stage of like you're being sifted. Uh, in fact, I would, I know that there are people that here in our, in our body who would describe their lives right now saying, yeah, I feel like I'm in that stage, that I, I am being shaken. And maybe you feel just so tired from the shaking and the sifting that you're like, I can't even think about strengthening other people. I feel too weak myself. But I would, I, would, I think God would want to say to you today that Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is calling your name, I believe, specifically out before the Father. And there is grace for you. And Satan does want to take you out. He wants to deactivate you to make you ineffective for the kingdom. But God's not done using you to impact others. Maybe, maybe you're, you're afraid of, of stepping out. Maybe you don't even want to pick up that burden of leadership that I read about earlier because you know that it can be heavy. And you, you're like, well, I, I just, I don't, I'm not gifted enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not experienced enough. And I'm not going to be good enough. Welcome to the club. None of us are, are good enough. None of us are, are really adequate for this. That's, that's what the, the story of Peter teaches us, is that God's grace is sufficient in our, in our weakness. Maybe, um, maybe you would say, well, I feel like I've, I know that I've already messed up. I've already messed up my influence. I feel like I've done a terrible job in influencing people in my sphere of influence. And... I'm done. My, my time has passed. Maybe because of what you've done or maybe how old you are or how young you are. I, I don't know. I think, again, the word that Jesus would speak to you is, no, there is grace for you. I'm praying for you, and my prayers for you are more effective than Satan's plans to deactivate you. And I think, I think Jesus, if, if he were, were here speaking to you, individually, which he, which he is, I think he would say to you by name, he says, I I'm praying for you, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to strengthen your brothers. I want you to strengthen those who are in your life around you to impact them through grace. So <clears throat> I'm going to pray, um, and then Pastor Bart's going to come back up and, and kind of close out uh, our, our time this morning. Father, I thank you I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your amazing grace, Father, that no matter where we are, you know where we are, Father. You see if we're being sifted. You see if we have fallen. You know, Father, when we feel tired, when we feel inadequate and ill-equipped to, to impact others. Father, I ask for an encounter with the grace of God this morning, a fresh and a new encounter with your grace, and that we would be able to, to leave this place um, not feeling burdened, but feeling light and free, feeling ready to, to be sent out to impact others for the kingdom of God. We ask that you would do that, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you are calling our names out before the Father, that you are pleading your blood over our lives. We thank you for what you're going to do through this people, through the individuals, and through the body of Fullness Christian Fellowship. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand up with me if you would.